The sermon text is from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. You can find it on page 638 in the paper Bible. He is in the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things are created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things are created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, around this time each year, we uh, have a series that we do going through who we are as a church, vision and values, getting us prepared for the fall as uh, people move into the neighborhood as people are checking out the church. We like to let people know who we are, what we're trying to do here. Um, and we're going to start doing that this week. But as you can already tell from being here the rest of the service, it's going to be a little bit different. Um, it's going to be a weird service. <laughs> it already is a weird service in a lot of ways. Um, but yesterday afternoon, we, we got some really bad news that uh, Justin, who was a a key member of this church, one of the founding people in our, our core group, a great friend of many of us, uh, and a dear brother in the Lord, died from a drug overdose. And so I spent the afternoon, probably like many of you, just stunned, trying to figure out what to do with that information. Um, and then I spent a lot of the evening in tears. I, I talked to many of you, passed on the information. Um, and, and while that news is going to continue to have a devastating effect on a lot of us, um, it doesn't change what I need to say this morning. If anything, uh, it adds to the urgency of what we come here to preach. Um, and so that's what we're looking at today. We're, we're looking at the priority of the gospel in our church. We're looking at uh, what it means to have the gospel as a driving power behind this congregation. And I imagine if you are, are visiting this morning, uh, you might feel a little bit out of place today. You might feel a little uncomfortable. Maybe you're in from out of town. Maybe uh, you are just moved here and you're checking out different churches. And maybe you've never even heard of this guy, Justin. Um, you didn't plan to attend a memorial service, <laughs> but you thought you were coming to a church. Um, and I just want to assure you that this is not just a message for memorial service. We will have one of those. It, it, it'll be sometime soon. You'll know about it. But today, this is a message for all of us. Huh. I want to talk about the gospel. I want to talk about why the gospel is our only hope and why Jesus is the only reason for this church or any church to exist. Um, and hopefully by the end of it, I, I, I want to invite us to come to him this morning. So that's what we're going to do. Something really simple today. I just want to ask three questions and answer those questions. I want to ask, what is the gospel? How does the gospel drive us? And then finally, how can we tell? What is the gospel? How does it drive us? And how can we tell? So the passage that uh, we read was from Colossians. Um, when we're doing this series, we're kind of going to jump around a little bit before we head through a, a whole book of the Bible in the fall. And we picked a, a passage that is from 
the first chapter in the book of Colossians. Colossians is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in a really small town in Rome. It was a town, this church was made mostly of converts, Gentile converts, people new to the faith. And so as he starts off his letter, he's just thanking God for what he's seen them do. But this, these few verses that we picked out this morning uh, are special. Because in the midst of this greeting, he unleashes this beautiful, poetic thing. This description that embodies not just the, the theology of our faith, but the heart of our faith. And most scholars, if you read what they have to say about this passage, they say, this is actually a hymn. It's not something that, uh, that Paul wrote, but a song that already existed that he folded in here. So really what's going on is, as Paul is reflecting on what's happened with these people as they've come to faith, he just breaks into song. As he's thinking about the glorious work of their salvation, he starts to sing. And the words are, are breathtaking. Listen to him. It says, He is the Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Did you hear that language? You get the sense as you read it that the language isn't big enough, right? You get the sense that the words just aren't quite grand enough to communicate the truth that Paul is trying to convey. It's like that pair of pants that you have, you know, that you got to take the deep breath in to button up, right? You can put them on, but they're about to explode. <laughs> words can't contain the majesty of the glory of the gospel. And these lines, like I said, they show us not only why our church exists, but why the church exists. So I want us just to quickly, at the outset, try to unpack this. Try to find out what it is that's in there. What Paul's trying to tell us. And the first thing he says is he. Right? He. Jesus. He says Jesus is God. That he's the creator and he is the sustainer of all things. And he describes him by saying that he is the image of the invisible God. That in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And what all that language means is simply this. Jesus has made the invisible God visible to us. Jesus has made the infinite God approachable for us. And that's an amazing thing, especially if you're familiar with your Bibles. If you've read through the Old Testament, you know that the idea of seeing God is something that comes up over and over again. There's lots of stories, right? Lots of stories about people who want to see God, people who try to see God, people who encounter God. Maybe you remember that story of Moses in the book of Exodus, 
where he pleads with God and he says, God, show me your glory. And God responds and says, I'm going to pass by you and I'll let you see my back, but you can't see my face. Because if anyone sees my face, no one can see my face and live. Or maybe you remember the story of Isaiah as he's worshiping in the temple and he has a vision of God. And just seeing the vision of God's holiness in the temple, all he can do is, is plead for mercy. He cries out and he says, woe is me, I'm lost. You see it all over scripture, over and over again. Whenever people encounter God, the only thing that they, they the first thing they come to realize is that there is a huge gap. There is a huge distance between God and man. His holiness is too much for us. And there is this deficiency in us that, that keeps us from him. I think on some level we have to know that instinctively, right? Regardless of what you might think about God, regardless of where you may be with this this morning, we all have this instinctive awareness of our inadequacies, don't we? We all have this sense that somehow we are incomplete, that we need improvement. We experience it daily. We experience it with our our battle to, I don't know, be self-disciplined. We experience it with our battle just to live up to our own internal expectations, right? We know we don't love people the way we should. We don't give people the amount of attention that we want to give them. We're not as present in our life as we want to be. Sometimes we know we're just not good enough, right? Think about the way you felt uh, the last time you were in the presence of someone more talented than you. Think about the way you felt the last time you were around someone who was better than you at your job or someone who was just better with people. They had those traits that you really envied. Do you remember the way you, you feel in those moments? All of a sudden, you, you, you become more aware of your own shortcomings. Now take that feeling and multiply it infinitely and exponentially. And maybe you can start to begin to feel what it would be like to be in the presence of a holy God. To be made fully aware of just how short you come. Scripture tells us there is a great divide between God and man. But that's what makes Paul sing here. Because in the person of Jesus, God has closed that divide. That's the miracle of the gospel. Jesus is God. He is the creator and the sustainer of all things, and he's one of us. Paul calls him the firstborn from the dead. That's, that's how he describes him here, and that's shorthand for a lot of stuff. The firstborn from the dead is shorthand for the fact that, that God, in all his fullness, that vast, infinite, the face-melting holiness of God all came and, and, and crammed itself down and became a man. And he lived like a man. He did the exact thing that, that we could never do. He lived a life without inadequacy. 
He lived a life that was perfectly holy. All that bad stuff we think about when we think about sin, he didn't do any of that. But then all the good things that we should have done, he did those things. He loved people perfectly. He lived selflessly. And the Gospel tells us that on the cross, He died. Not for His crimes. Not for His crimes before God, but for yours. And for mine. That's what verse 20 says. It says that the work that was being done on the cross, Jesus did the one thing we could never do. He reconciled us to God. He bridged the gap. And so anyone who comes to know Jesus as their Savior, that means that their sins and their shortcomings are forever dealt with. It means they have been paid for by Christ's blood. And the proof of that is the resurrection. The proof of that is that Jesus conquers sin and death. But here's the thing. It doesn't stop there. We can't stop there because the Gospel is bigger than that even. Verse 20, it says that Jesus came to reconcile all things. All things. That's really the theme of this song, if there is one. It's all things. If I was collecting this and putting it in that early hymn book, that's the title that I would put at the top. All things. Because that's how it starts. It says, all things were created by Jesus. Heaven and earth. All the things that are visible, invisible. Thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. All of it. Right? That means the United States and Russia and China. It means all the rulers, right? Obama and Hillary and Trump and Putin and all those people. It means the, the warlords and the drug lords and the slum lords. Everything. And not just that. It means the sun and the moon and the vastness of the universe. All things. And on the cross, he reconciled it to himself. That means that through His blood, Jesus didn't just save His people, but He has reconciled the whole world. He has promised to set the whole world back the way that it's supposed to be. That one day everything is going to fall in submission to Him. There will be no more division between God and man. There will be no more racism. There will be no more injustice. There will be no more inequality, no more violence, no more hate. There will be no more overdoses. There will be no more rebellion against the will of God. He has come to make all things new, to transform Every aspect of this devastating world, nothing can and nothing will ever escape his grasp. That's what has been done, and that's what the gospel promises us. But how does that drive us? How does that empower the church? And this is where I want us to spend most of the rest of our time this, this morning, because first of all, there's a really simple application of this. If that's who Jesus is, if these 
few verses, if this song tries to describe and contain just how great he is, then that means at the very least there is one simple fact we have to get from this. Jesus is big. Right? Jesus is big. I don't know how that sounds to you this morning, but I think a lot of us Christians in this room, we miss that fact. Jesus is big. A lot of us, we have a small Jesus. And you know what? When the church has a small Jesus, the world sees a small Jesus. But what does that mean? What do I mean when I say that we have a big Jesus? Well, let me try to explain it this way. You know, I just tried to give a a brief run-through of the facts of the gospel. And I think a lot of us, if you're a Christian in this room, maybe you've heard something similar to that. Maybe there's been some campus ministry or, or some guy on the street who's given you a little booklet. And in that booklet, there's a presentation of what it means to follow Jesus, right? And there's a, a thing that will say God is, is holy, right? And, and we're not holy. And there's nothing we can do to bridge this gap. Have you ever seen a drawing like this? Two lines and they're empty. And then there, maybe there's some arrows too that are pointing up. And the arrows say, no matter what you do, you can't be holy enough for God, right? You can't do enough good works. You can never lift yourself up to God. So then what's the solution? You remember? It's the cross, right? There's a little cross and people draw a cross and they say, well, the cross is what bridges that gap. And that's a fine presentation. It's fair. Maybe that's part of your story. Maybe you saw that presentation or you heard that gospel message and you prayed a sinner's prayer and you came to faith thinking that that from then on out, harmony would follow. Your life reconciled to God's. But what really happens? What is it really like to walk out the life of faith? What about God's holiness? Isn't it the case that the longer you, the more you read the word, the more you get to know God, the more you experience Him, you realize His holiness is not just right here, right? But it's, it's right here, and then it's right here, right? You, you read the, the Word and you find out that, that His standard was not just be a good person, but it was love your neighbor as yourself. It was be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It was, I am the Lord your God. It says, I am a consuming fire. <laughs> You get to realize that God is a lot bigger than you thought he was. That he's a lot further than you thought he was and that you're a lot further from being there than you thought you were. And maybe when you first came to faith, you you admitted that you were a sinner. You said, yeah, I've got some problems that I need to deal with. That's why I need Jesus. You agreed maybe you didn't live up to some of your own standards. And maybe when you first came to faith, some of those things changed. Maybe you got some of those big things out of your life. But the more you walk with Jesus, you learn there's a lot more underneath there. (laughs) There's a lot more sins that were resting behind those big sins. That there are some problems in your life that are much deeper. Some things that are harder. Maybe you have sins in your life that have hung around for years. Maybe you have temptations that you just can't shake. And then you start to realize that the gap isn't just this big. It's not just this big. (laughs) But it's 
ever-growing, infinitely large. And what do you do when your cross is this big? Well, you got some options, right? One thing you can do is you can fake it. You can pretend. You can act like you're doing better than you are, right? You can hide. You can cover up. You can conceal your struggles so that no one knows about it, so that on the outside you look like everything's fine. We talked about this last week, right? There's a lot of people in the church. There are a lot of churches like this. I cannot tell you how many times people have come to my office and they've sat down with me and they said, Pastor, I'm struggling with this stuff. And the hardest thing about it is I know I'm the only one with a problem in this church. We can hide from ourselves. That's one option. We can pretend. The other thing we can do is we can perform. When we start to realize how far away we are from a holy God, we can say, well, God, I know I'm, I'm not as good as, as I thought I would be by this point, but I'll make it up to you. You know, I know I keep screwing up, but next time I'll be better. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to recommit this time, and I'm going to go to every community group every week, and I'm going to help out with the real kids ministry three nights a week, and I'm going to get involved with mercy ministry, and, and I'll make a difference. I'll have my quiet time every day. I'll pray for an hour, whatever you need. And pretty soon, it's the doing that becomes your hope. We get in this tit-for-tat kind of relationship with God. We end up with a faith that is really based a lot more on our performance than it is on Him. It's a faith that's filled with insecurity and fear. It's a faith where we're always asking ourselves, well, have I done enough? If, I, if, if the Lord came calling tonight, what would I tell Him? But you know what? Neither of those things are the gospel. Pretending and performing. The gospel means good news, right? That's what we say. The gospel is good news. But that's terrible news. <laughs> Living that way is awful. Living that way is, is slavery. And if that's you today, if that's how you feel this morning, then I want to tell you, you need a bigger Jesus. Have you guys been watching the Olympics at all this week, last week? If you watch it, you know, in between the events, they cut to show scenes of the city. And a few times they've, they've shown that giant statue of Jesus. Have you seen that? Christ the Redeemer. It's a big statue of Jesus standing like this. I looked it up online. That statue is 125 feet tall. It, it weighs over 600 tons. That's the kind of Jesus you need. <laughs> when you realize that God's holiness is so far beyond you, when you realize that your sin is an unending hole of depravity, you're not in a bad place. I want to say that's the moment when you're finally ready. That's the moment when you are ready to believe the gospel. That Jesus is not just that little extra push that you need. He's not the teacher whose philosophy is going to round out your life that's already pretty good. Jesus is big. He's reconciled us to God. He doesn't just get your foot in the door and then say, all right, now it's up to you. Earn it. Get your act together. 
Jesus is big. He has fully paid for all your sins with his precious blood. All of them. Past, present, future. His blood has covered them all. That means then, if that's the case, that if you tell a lie and you walk out this door and you get hit by a truck, your sins are still paid for. And if you turn to drugs and you overdose and die, he is still big enough. Jesus is big. Your sin is no match for him. And our sin is deep. Our sin is pervasive. On our own, we would be lost. That's a fact. You are the kind of sinner that can only be saved by the biggest Savior imaginable. And that's the kind of Savior we have. The kind of Savior who's so big that no language could possibly describe Him fairly. And so when you're wrestling with your fear, when you're wrestling with your inadequacies, when you're wrestling with your temptation, that means that there is always and there is ever and there is only one hope for you. Run to Him. Cling to Him. Grab a hold of your big Savior and find life and deliverance in His arms. Repent and believe the Gospel. And when you find yourself back in that place, repent and believe the Gospel again. And repent. And believe the Gospel because Jesus is big. He will complete the work that He began in you. He will drag you into glory. There is no power in heaven or on earth, visible or invisible. There is no country or king that can stop Him. If you belong to Him, He tells us that no one, nothing can snatch us out of His hand. Because everything was made by him, and everything has been conquered by him. Jack Miller is a pastor uh, who's passed away, but he wrote a great book. It's a book of letters uh, called The Heart of a Servant Leader. And in that book, he wrote a letter to a friend who was struggling with, with mental illness, and he was particularly wrestling with Satan and the power of sin in his life. And I want to share with you this letter because I was actually reading it right when I, I got the call about Justin yesterday. Um, and he wrote this letter to encourage this man. And, and I, I want to share it to encourage you. He said, You may ask, what can encourage me? You know, I'll say, when I'm talking about what it means to be driven by the gospel, this is a picture of what it means. What does it mean to find the power in the gospel? This is a very practical application of what that might look like for you today. So listen up. You may ask, what can encourage me? The work of Christ can and must. Believe. Only believe. My great concern is to see you trust 
that Christ can help you. Hope in Him. Your back is to the wall. The army of the Pharaoh is behind. The desert on both sides. And the Red Sea is before you. Who can save? Only the Son of God. I do not pretend to be a match for the devil. You're no match for him. But I must tell you that Satan is no match for my Jesus. No match at all. One word from Jesus and the whole host of hell must flee. It appears to me that the devil has somehow convinced you that there is little or no prospect for you to be delivered from his influence on your life and mind. He's made you think that Jesus cannot really help you because your struggles are too great. Your bondages are too much, too special, too unique. Well, you've listened to a lie. Get your heart back to the gospel. What power is there in this sweet message? Just take John 3.16 and 17 and, and chew on these verses and say them and sing them and shout them and preach them to yourself until your heart is filled with awareness and marvel at the Father's love to you. Put your name in the place of the personal pronouns. For God so loved you that He gave His only Son that whoever believes Him would not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that you might be saved through Him. Hold on to these promises. They're like great branches hanging out over the sea of self and sin. You must grab them and hold on and the Savior will pull you to safety. The King is on the march. Who dares to stand against Him? He is our omnipotent intercessor. Who can condemn? He is the author of the Gospel and He sends His Spirit to apply His message to the fountains of life. Who then can remain unclean? Folks, the Gospel is the power of God for our salvation. And it is the only thing that is strong enough to drive this church. So my third question has a very short answer. And that is, how can we tell? How can we tell if the gospel is driving our lives? How can we tell if the gospel is driving this church or if it's something else? I think there's a couple of things we can do to diagnose. First, we can ask a very simple question. Where do we expect to find salvation? Churches can do a lot of things to help neighborhoods, right? And we do things. And we will do things. We'll continue to do things. We can minister to the poor. We can march with Black Lives Matter. We can do children's outreach at the Haley Apartments. We can counsel people when they're struggling with addiction. We can. And we do. And, and we should. But our church cannot be about those things. Because on their own, those things have no power. Only the Gospel can save. What are we looking to for salvation? What do we think will fix the things that blight us? 
And what is our hope? What are we resting in this morning? What are we looking to for comfort? As you face this week ahead, as a lot of us are trying to deal with a tremendous loss, is it the small hope of an improved society? Or is it the person and the work of Jesus who is reconciling to himself all things? Today as as we're mourning, today as we're struggling to make it through, where are we going to for comfort? Where are we going for rest? I want to invite you now to come to the only one who is big enough. The only one who is big enough to bear our grief this morning. I want to invite you to take down your front. To stop pretending like you're okay. To stop pretending like you've got your life together and everything is fine on the outside. I want to invite you to lay down your effort. I want to invite you to lay down your works. I want to invite you to stop trying to earn it and just come to Him. I want to invite you to this table. I want to invite you to partake in that infinite and inexhaustible love of Jesus. He's mighty to save. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful for the gospel. It's our only hope. We have nothing to offer except what we've received. Lord, I am so thankful that you saw fit to redeem the lives of so many here. And I pray, God, that you would continue that work. For anyone in this room who doesn't know you. I pray, Father, that they would receive an invitation to everlasting life today. I pray that they would turn from their sin and turn to you. And Lord, for everyone here who is grieving, who needs comfort, Lord, I pray that we could rest in the knowledge that you, our Savior, has fully paid for all our sins with your precious blood. that no one can snatch us out of your hand. That you will complete what you've begun. And we pray in your name. Amen.